Taste buds, dinner should never be boring. That's why old El Paso never stops bringing the fun of taco night to your home. They believe taco night is the one meal that gets everyone excited to come to the table, even the pickiest 70-year-old. They've designed their shells in soft tortilla bowls to stand up on their own, leaving more time for talking and filling and less time worrying about mess and spilling. Old El Paso, grab the yellow box. Hungry Homies, today's episode of House of Carbs also brought to you by Lara Bar. Made with just a handful of real ingredients like unsweetened fruits, whole nuts, spices, and sometimes delicious chocolate chips. Lara Bar is simple, delicious, and easy to bring wherever life takes you. And with more than 20 flavor options, all inspired by delicious desserts like cherry pie, chocolate chip cookie dough, lemon bar, and peanut butter chocolate chip, Lara Bar is sure to fight off hunger and satisfy your sweet tooth. Lara Bar is available nationwide at your local grocery store, Target, Walmart, or on Amazon.com. Explore all their fun flavors at larabar.com to find your favorite Larabar food made from food. All right, my hungry homies, my taste buds, my culinary comrades, we've done it. Welcome. It's a beautiful late summer, early fall edition of House. Of course, the food podcast for the hungry people by the hungry people on the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm your hungry host, Joe House. What a show this week. Where I was so lucky to have a real uh, eating enthusiast, the national writer at large for Thrillist, Kevin Alexander, was in Washington, D.C. We sat down together for a long time. We talked a bit, we recorded some potting, then we went out and ate and drank and drank and drank and drank. Kevin's got a new book out about the last decade of eating and drinking in America. That book is called Burn the Ice. It's out now. Listen to this terrific conversation between me and the hungry homie, Kevin Alexander. All right, my culinary comrades, my guest today is the national writer at large for Thrillist, focusing mainly on the restaurant and bar industry. He is the recipient of the Society of Professional Journalists, Mark of Excellence. He is an award winner, 2018. That was just last year. Got an award from the Association of Food Journalists. He is a James Beard Award winner for an article he wrote where he tracked down the yearbook of New York Times food critic Pete Wells, and he wrote a book, and he's sitting here right in front of me right now. Kevin Alexander, welcome to House of Carbs. Thank you so much for having me, House. It is uh, a distinct honor and privilege. I know that you are touring uh, behind your book. The book is called Burn the Ice, the American Culinary Revolution and its End. I have to share with you a story before we get going here. 
I uh, am doing a weekly bit with Bill Simmons on the Bill Simmons podcast, the BS podcast, where we uh, compare notes on who we like coming up in the NFL games. And we might sprinkle a little bit of capital. We allocate a little capital here and there. We have some thoughts. Um, he asked me at the end of our most recent uh, convening and, and uh, forecasting of football bets, who was coming up on House of Carbs? And I told him I have this great guy, Kellen Alexander from Thrillist. He's got a book out. And I told him kind of the thrust of the book is Kevin imagines that this terrific restaurant moment that we've kind of enjoyed for the like past 10 or 15 years could be coming to an end. And Bill Simmons said, well, please tell um, Kevin Alexander that I'm giving him the middle finger right now. <laughs> so now I... I uh, I, I I share that because it does kind of um, set a a type of stage sure in 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 the following way. Um, why does this restaurant moment that we're kind of enjoying right now have to end and why does it have to come to an end now um, that's the 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 question I pose to you and we'll let you mull it. I know that you wrote uh, 320 pages on it. But I, I don't want to sort of begin with the end. I want to begin with the beginning. Sure. Which is how in the hell did this book come together? Um, and I'll, I'll give you some of my personal thoughts once we get chatting. But, but uh, how did this come together? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I just want to say it's such a pleasure to be on the House of Carbs. Uh, I had long thought of the alliteration. And I wanted to give you a few of my little uh, picks that maybe, you know, if you want to use them at some point, you can take credit for them. What about uh, eating evangelicals? Oh. Or maybe uh, varsity victuals or victual varsity? I like, I, like, yeah. I like where you're going with this. Victual varsity. Victual varsity is Because, you know, we, we do have a pretty uh, well-informed, um, well-hungry, uh, well and hopefully well-fed audience. So varsity is uh, absolutely I think so, right? the it, right treatment. It's distinguishing them from sort of the JV folks that only just sort of, sort of care about food. This is the victual varsity. They're in a, they're in a whole other tier. You're right about that. And, you know, I've been doing eating enthusiasts occasionally, but yeah. evangelical is so much better. Right? Because think about it. I mean, they're going around the country telling you they're, you're evangelizing for food. So, I mean, that, that's what comes to mind with Joe House. Well, we've, we've been belly sourcing since yes. the beginning. So the evangelical element. And it is absolutely religious for, for <laughs> all of us hungry homies. It is completely religious. I, I, I count myself as one of those. So, um, <laughs> But anyway, so I'm, I'm glad I, I got to share those with you. Uh, but yeah, so let me just tell you a little bit about where this book kind of started. I, uh, around 2016, 2017, I was touring around the country. And so I had 330 burgers in 30 cities. So I did something called Burger Quest. And during Burger Quest, all I would do is go into a city and eat burgers. Like that's what I was doing for 48 hours. And naturally, when you do that, you can't eat at other restaurants. But you go, so I would go for a drink or do something afterwards. And because I was in so many cities, I started to recognize patterns. 
So I would see the same styles of places and you would see sort of, you know, the place with the uh, Edison bulbs and the reclaimed wood and the farm to table menu and the craft cocktail uh, deal and, you know, tatted folks serving you in this sort of no frills environment. And I, and I just got curious. I was like, where did this all come from and why are we able to get this sort of stuff in Omaha and Oklahoma city in Kansas city and and all over the country and in places that you normally sort of associated with the coasts or maybe with the Bay area and New York city. So that sort of started my quest and I traced it back really to the beginning was 2006 which was uh, really Portland, Oregon, was sort of agent zero in this whole patient zero, patient zero, patient right? zero. For, for, yeah. yeah, that's what we when when a spread when a when a, a, a plague spreads. Exactly, it was zero. the the monkey plague, the monkey from outbreak. <laughs> yes, that that that's uh, that <laughs> was Portland, Oregon, and and I mean, I, I think it's important to understand that. 2006 was this crucially important year for everything to explode. And uh, it was when Top Chef launched and also the second season of Anthony Bourdain. It was social media launched. This was when Eater and Serious Eats came out. And so you look at all of those things happening at the same time. And that was really when people started paying attention to to areas outside of the the Bay Area and New York and Portland was really the original place for that. So you just kind of described a bunch of disparate um media f- sources, right? Mm-hmm. That 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 all sort of came together in their own ind- independent way. Mainstream television with with Top Chef, Eater, um 100%, you know, an internet kind of uh entity yep. and then social media which by which i you you is twitter facebook and, and yeah right right and then eventually instagram etc cetera, et cetera. yes so uh and and all of those things have their own role in terms of you know the rising tide and and we've been fortunate here on the show to have guests over the last couple of years and we do hit this theme of kind of the democratization of food mm-hmm. Um, which as, you know, certainly builds off of a bunch of those sort of, uh, uh, media factors. Um, but how did you land on Portland as sort of the, the original source? So Portland was in this really weird space in 2006. There had been this, uh, hottest restaurant group called Ripe and that had just imploded and there was so much talent wandering around but like all of the well-heeled folks that invested in Ripe didn't want to touch anything else because they'd been burnt. So what you saw was really all of these folks scraping around and creating these new projects and a lot of talent really sort of like, uh, you know, uh, Andy Ricker building Pock Pock out of his house for 60 grand and Gabriel Rucker taking over this failed bistro Colleen's and he was 26 years old and they were basically like, I don't know, advertising in the yellow page. And they're like, whatever you want to do. So it was basically a bunch of these Hail Marys and like a bunch of people being like, well, look, we have no other choice and we can't get any money. So let's just start doing cool stuff. And in the weird way that that works in culture, that started to build a reputation because it felt unique. And when, and I call it the New York food mafia, started to come out to Portland and write about this, 
other places that didn't have culinary reputations. And now look, Portland was essentially the culinary stepchild to Seattle at the time. It was chicken and JoJo's and that was pretty much it. And no one like no one would ever say, oh, Portland was the spot. And all of a sudden, uh, they had this huge culinary coming out in 2006. They got all this national exposure and all these other cities could see the template that Portland created. So you'd say Austin in 2009 and Charleston in 2011 and Nashville in 2013 and Pittsburgh in 2015. And you could say, hey, we don't need to have all that culinary history to do the things that they're doing in Portland. So it was really important for these other cities to see the Portland template. Well, I do uh, also think, and, and you can correct me if I have my facts wrong, um, Portland already had kind of this, uh, I don't, uh, outside the mainstream uh, innovation reputation as it related to food because of the food truck scene which I think preceded 2006. Am I actually no, accurate it, or wrong? That that took off in 2008, which oh. during the recession, which is when it kind of exploded everywhere, right? So that was more about them not being able to get brick and mortar loans to create restaurants. So yeah, so I mean, and that definitely played a part, but it just came a little bit after this sort of initial groundswell of popularity there. Okay, and right, the, what, what, um, in your uh, experience of interviewing folks like Gabriel Rucker and Andy Ricker and other folks in Portland, what do you think um, it is about the eating population in Portland that made them receptive to what these guys were doing? Yeah, I mean, Portland, and especially at that time, was this place where a lot of creative folks were coming. It was cheaper than Seattle and San Francisco and a lot of the other big cities. Um, you know, there's the Nike was up there and Whedon and Kennedy and, and some of the, so there's like uh, creative industries up there and people that are willing to try things. Um, and it was also just like the culture of sort of, it was like, post grunge mm -hmm. but in that sort of element of like whatever let's do like, it yourself yeah exactly DIY, DIY. yeah That's exactly my, you know my old hardcore roots here in DC <laughs> exactly so the, you know so a lot of people were into that and it was like oh a guy built like this Thai restaurant out of a house like let's go check it out uh this guy is using like foie gras and ice cream and what like what's that about? Like there there was a little bit more daring there, and it was a little bit more sort of like who cares? Let's just see what happens. And um, and I think that was sort of the really the the power behind driving that forward. Yeah. So if you um, as you are thinking about you know that this book coming together, and I know you did kind of a series of articles back in 2016 for Thrillist that I, I sort of regard as the skeleton for, for what the book ultimately became. How you, you know that, that Portland, because of what you've done in talking to folks, is going to be your starting point. How do you construct the journey from there? Yeah, uh, great question. I basically, so what I did at the very beginning, I, I had this thesis and I had a few ideas of the people that I wanted in the book. And I worked with my agent, David Granger, who for 20 years was the editor-in-chief of Esquire. And he, he, and he and I kind of brainstormed and, and built this proposal. But then when the book sold, 
I was like, oh, I have to do this now. (laughs) So what I did is I immediately went to the San Francisco Public Library. And for the first two months, I took out every food magazine, newspaper, food section from the last 12 years. And I read them all straight through and took crazy notes. So just, you know, what it, what's going on in Bon Appetit and Sever and food and wine and the old uh, gourmet and just checking all of that stuff out and looking at, you know, where were the trends going? What were people talking about? And so I took and, and, and at the end of that, I started to sort of have a vision of the different narratives that I wanted to get to outside of sort of if Portland was kind of this narrative spine, there are all these other stories that went on over the last 12 years that I wanted to make sure I got in there. And so really doing some deep deep research there helped kind of shape the rest of the skeleton. No, I, I want to um, tap the brakes just for a second and give a shout out to the San Francisco Public Library System because it's a pretty remarkable thing that you just said. You said that in 2016, you went to the public library and and that with the great folks, the assistance of the folks there, pulled up from their archives, newspapers and magazines, like things you can touch, paper, and and were able to, you know, in, in a fairly comprehensive and sweeping way, try and onboard all of that information. But like, what if the San Francisco Public Library didn't exist? You know what I mean? I mean, shout out to my girl, Sandra, in the research department. Um, but it, it was crazy. I mean, they were, they were just these, they, they, would ba- they had bound copies of all of these magazines going back, you know, 30, 40 years. Um, I like geeked out hard in like old New West magazine, which is the old New York magazine when they tried to go to California for a while. Oh my. I was, I got deep into it. <laughs> it, it, it got really weird uh, for a while. But, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, the, shout them out. The public libraries are, are beautiful. Vital, right? Vital. I mean, that's it. That's the lifeblood the life of our blood. learning that's system. Like we, we should all be, you know, uh, reminded and, and take advantage so that these kind of crucial archivals, you know, archives exactly. and the archiving and the incentive to do that continues onward. All right. So back, back to food though. Yeah. Um, so you uh, have kind of an emerging pattern of stories. One of the things that I find most compelling about the book that I really enjoy about the book, and this is the way that I've been reading it and you'll have to forgive me. I've read the beginning and the end, but not all of the stories in the middle, because in some ways I am, and this is the point, I'll get to it, I promise. I savor the stories, and to me, it seems like each of the individual stories has its own standalone quality, and that that's deliberate. It seems to me that it's deliberate. Is it deliberate? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And, and it was really important for me to be able to look at each, especially the reoccurring narratives. So there's only, I think there's five that come back all the way through. And so there's the story of Gabriel Rucker and the Portlandization of America, right? So the thing we kind of talked about, that was the reason for telling his story. He also had like the, the subplot of that is that his struggles with addiction, which are, you know, prevalent all through the food industry. So that, that was a, an important story to tell. The uh, Andre Prince Jeffries with Prince's Hot Chicken, that was really the story of cultural appropriation in America, 
and sort of like what is the line between appropriation and just sort of like business practices or or celebration or celebration exactly um and then uh there was there are snapshots of uh Ferret Street in New Orleans starting in 2008 through 2018 and that was sort of I was trying to tell you know what's the line between revitalization and gentrification of a neighborhood especially when it comes to food um there were stories of Anjan and Emily Mitra from Dosa in San Francisco which is really about the hippification of non-western European foods and sort of the expanding palate of Americans and you know and then um Tunde Wei who's a Nigerian food activist his story was really about like activism about people waking up and about immigration in America so there were these really important through lines that I wanted to tell throughout and of course and I'm forgetting Phil Ward who was a bartender from New York and tells the story of the the rise of sort of craft cocktails in America so yeah. so all of those through lines you're ex you're exactly right and I really had to defend them um, but I want that, that wasn't where I wanted to stop. Cause I, I, you know, if I could have done it, I would have had 300 people in the book. Sure. But I, so I had these little vignettes of sometimes there were famous people like Guy Fieri or Reed Drummond, the pioneer woman, or, you know, the, uh, Colicchio. Tom Colicchio. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and I just wanted those as little standalones and sometimes Rodney Scott, you know, telling the story of uh, bar the rise of sort of barbecue again in America. And all of these needed to stand up for something. And, and I had to be able to go to my editor and say, I need this story in because this is about X in America. And this tells that story in the last 12 years. So, so it really was important that they all mattered to some extent. My Victual Varsity, quick break from this conversation with the homie. Kevin Alexander to tell you about ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy. You only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash cards. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there. They have powerful matching technology, and ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, House of Carbs listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash carbs. That's ZipRecruiter.com com slash c-a-r-b-s zip recruiter the smartest way to hire we this is the the topic for a longer conversation i'm looking forward to when we're going to be together uh hopefully uh on in the in the very near future here in washington um you know when you're doing kind of a public treatment of the book and and you know book signing and and folks can come out we have time to sort of dive into there's a lot of weighty stuff in this book and and you know if if you if i think about kind of how the future of the restaurant industry is you know going to sort of move forward issues like immigration issues like gentrification issues like you know kind of the the me too moment that the industry was confronted by and issues of cultural appropriation all of those i feel like we're at the kind of front end 
of you know of, of working those out in a way that um, you know makes sense and that we can all uh, you know I, we're not going to end up with a perfectly neat conclusion to any of it, right? No. It's it's, it's going to be messy, but we're the 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 challenge like taking on that challenge is worthwhile. And a good investment of our time and food energy, our belly energy, and you know the industry. To me, maybe I'm I'm dumb and oversimplifying, but it's a nice, uh, uh, you know, moment to be like cognizant of it and stuff like what Eater is doing. Mm-hmm. Our mutual pal Amanda Clute, yeah, where they are asking their um, best new chefs to kind of sign a code of conduct mm-hmm. that they uphold uh, a set of ethics as it relates to how they'll, they'll deal with other people seems kind of weird, right? Like, wh- why are you asking people to treat other people right? right but right. on the other hand, you know, the industry doesn't have a great reputation for that. So in that respect, I liked very much that those um, elements are, are, are part of the book. Um, wh- what, what are your thoughts on, you know, let, let's start with, the sort of challenge, and I think this is uh, for- foreshadowing a little bit um, what you mean when you say coming to the end. I'm going to y- let you explain it, but um, you know that the, the industry challenge of like trying to make a successful restaurant means in the first place finding brick and mortar that's affordable, yep. and that necessarily means pushing into um, you know at least for for. Um, metropolitan areas, portions of cities that have cheap rent. So that all by itself necessarily carries along with it this element of, I think, gentrification. Um, how, how do you sort of a- anticipate that playing out? And and it's going to be a different answer for different cities, obviously. Sure. I, I mean, the, what I found really interesting about New Orleans and Ferret Street was in 2008, uh, Katrina had you know wiped it out and it, it was no one wanted to really participate uh and everyone said you know to the folks from cure that uh, bought this old firehouse and we're gonna make this destination cocktail bar like you're crazy and stupid and when you hear those kind of stories all the time oh what are you doing going in this neighborhood it's dangerous or it's whatever but i think what we've come to realize and i think what hopefully folks are getting better at is recognizing that like when you come into a neighborhood revitalization is important because people want their neighborhood to be nicer they want uh, newer places they want more people around and and all of that sort of stuff but it's finding ways to have the original community that's part of it participate in the new establishments as well and not have it feel like it's this, you know, alien being that's just sort of beamed down. Descending. Yeah, exactly. And that was really the issue of, and like, you know, one of the side interests that I have is sort of like the the rise and fall of the, the hipster culture, mm. right? And when we saw it kind of become this uh, this thing again in the late nineties, early two thousands and kind of explode through there. And it really did feel like, um, these little colonies of mostly white folks coming into places where there are mostly not white folks and, and creating their own little space and kind of like elbowing people out. Yeah. And hopefully the evolution of that is 
when people come into neighborhoods that are not traditionally their own, they're now more conscious of, hey, like, let's participate in this community. Let's meet our neighbors. Let's let's figure out ways that like we can get all of us to work together. And that's what I'm seeing. And I'm I'm more hopeful for in like at least the the people that are thinking about it now. And it seems like more people are actually thinking about it now than they were say 10 years ago at the beginning of this book. Yeah. So um, is there an example that you can think of in terms of like this community collaboration, this mutual participation, this recognition of there were people living here already um, that that was a success story that's in the book? Yeah. I mean, uh, I think that the, I'm trying to think if there's like a particular story from the book that discusses, I mean, I would say Sonia Finn in Pittsburgh, who, um, you know, she was from the area, the uh, East Liberty, sort of, it was the beginning of gentrification there. And she wanted to make sure that it was like the, the her whole reason for having her restaurant, Dinette, in the area that she put it in was because she saw all these big box sort of like more upscale neighborhood places coming in that were just sort of cookie cutter. And she was like, no, someone from the neighborhood needs to be here. This needs to be a place that families can come to that neighborhood people know it's okay to come through. And it's not just a Whole Foods in a parking lot and people kind of driving in and coming out. So uh, her story is a little bit pulls in, um, to that world, but it's complicated. I mean, it yeah. always is complicated. Right. And, and there's never like a clean, as you were no, saying, it's always messy. Like there's never like a clean, like, and then they were all good. That's right. <laughs> well, and, and I will say this, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. So I'll just, I don't accept the proposition that, that there's an end coming. I, I get the idea. I know what your, your, your point is, but, um, I think about the the overall demographic movement of people moving to cities mm-hmm. more and more and that like the the idea of city expanding um and and you know just the sort of the city limits expanding to accommodate you know the the influx of people because that's where jobs and culture exist and I because of my glass half full orientation think that that could be a vehicle for the kind of mutual participation, the collaboration. You recognize the people that were here that essentially established the infrastructure that allow um, folks that are moving back towards the cities or into the cities for the first time to enjoy what the, that that communal living has to offer. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that respect, that's my, like, when I look up into the the sky and see the North Star, you know, I want it bright and shiny, the restaurant North Star. I want it to consist of of that kind of sentiment. Um, so that's, but again, that's probably wishful thinking. No, okay. So here is, I, I want to be very clear about what I mean when I mean that it's coming to an end. So basically, the places that I was talking about, these chef-owned independent restaurants that had this farm-to-table ethos that were of this certain template um, that, popped up all over America and people in, and then really helped start this culinary revolution, the era of those restaurants being able to be financially solvent enough to sustain themselves is coming to an end. And I'll tell you why that's coming to an end. So basically 
we haven't had a recession. I mean, there's there's rumblings of a recession now, but we haven't had a recession in 11 years. And what does that mean? That means landlords have been able to raise rents for 11 straight years, okay? There's rising food costs. There's market saturation. There are 100,000 more restaurants in America now than there were 10 years ago. And do you think that those those restaurants are like evenly distributed across the country? No, they are all popping up in places like Washington, D.C., in places like San Francisco, in places like Seattle and Portland. So what you see is, and, and what that also means is that restaurant rents get more expensive, as do residential rents, which means workers getting priced out of being able to afford to live in these cities. Less workers means increased competition, so workers are harder to find and keep. So there's this huge labor shortage in the back of the house thanks to like we just talked about, but also reverse immigration. And th it's really at a crisis point. And that limits creativity with your menu. Because if you're constantly switching out people in the back of the house, you can't teach them to do more complicated things. So all of this adds up to the fact that, you know, these independent sit down. So the, the way that I define them is fine, casual dining restaurants in America. They are the ones that are sadly being pushed out and really, we've entered this new era called the, which I call the age of the operator, which is really with, there are places that look a lot like the restaurants that were, and you know, if you just walk in and it's the back of like Highlights Magazine and you're sort of like, which is which, you maybe you don't know, but those places are owned by the big restaurant groups that have enough capital, that have enough resources to kind of take those independent ideas and say, well, we can kind of give you the thing that you were getting before, and maybe you don't notice, and maybe we'll make it fast casual, and you bust your plate, even though we'll give you a mezcal cocktail, and we'll give you the kale, and we'll give you the pork belly, et cetera. So I'm just saying those restaurants are currently in trouble. And what I'm hoping is that, you know, there is a recession, etc. Then it sort of wipes the slate clean. Austerity breeds creativity. We start again and we have this new incredible era. Okay. Well, I'm interested in hearing what you think that new incredible era um, might consist of, but I want to start with this. You hurt my feelings in this book. and you, you, you <laughs> Intentionally. I know. Well, there's no Washington, D.C. in here. And Washington D.C. had uh, as as much of a you know as as a re as a represent representative city that captures what you're talking about. Now it has its own dynamic, and I've yep. a, a handful of times talked about the unique dynamic that persists here in Washington that really only came to rise in like the last 15 years, which is the recognition that there's a lot of money in Washington D.C. and that money in Washington D.C. is in many respects inoculated from recessionary uh, uh, kind of movements in the economy because the federal government is the employer here, the central employer of both, you know, a huge amount of human beings that work for the federal government and an enormous number of businesses that exist in service of the federal government. So, um, you know, that has been kind of an incubator. Washington's become, you know, this this place where New York restaurateurs came down like, oh, we want a piece of that. Yeah. yeah. OK, we Dave see. Chang, how, right? That's sure. And and uh, Daniel Balloon and, you know, there's a, a handful of others. Um, but in terms of this uh, dynamic of independent folks wanting to try something and then having success at, at trying their thing and then building on that thing 
that's happened here in Washington. For sure. A lot of great examples of it. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on the sustainability because I'm going to give uh, a couple of examples he- here in Washington. So one is is Rose's Luxury, which is I think hits the mark in terms of what you're describing as like the sort of For sure. te- template of a fast well, it's not fast, but fine casual, fine dining. casual. That's right. Yes, fine casual dining, um, and you know you get an experience out of it. But it's not break the bank. I have a couple different times gone in with just a handful of people and ordered the entire menu just because we want to try everything that's going on yep. at that moment in the restaurant. Uh, and I do have a big appetite, <laughs> but uh, you know, and th- those folks um, took their success and turned it into a couple of additional. Um, projects. One, a super high-end pineapple, pi- pineapple and pearls, which is just tremendous. Um, you know, a, a special occasion kind of dinner where you pay in advance and there's no transaction kind of aspect to it at all, which is very cool. Something I wish other folks would consider. Pay up front. I'm going to walk in, I'm going to eat, and I'm going to leave, and everything's taken care of. Uh, and if you want, there's nothing, it's America. So if you want to do extra special recognition of the terrific service, you can always take money out of your pocket and give it to the people sure, sure. that serve. But like the the idea of not having any of that as part of the eating experience is really liberating. And then there's a, like also innovation in terms of um, a variety of cuisines that have come to the fore here in the United States. Filipino food has has been having a moment and continues to have a moment. We have a great restaurant here called Bad Saint, mm-hmm. which opened up in basically a, a, a row house up in the Columbia Heights neighborhood. You can only it seats sixteen at best at a minute, so you have to you know be willing to stand in line and find your slot in, into there. But those folks are often doing other creative, exciting things. And what I'm posing to you is, why can't that be? the thing that comes next where independent operators try something find a little success build off that success they don't need necessarily the big capital that you're talking about am i right or am i wrong okay well i i mean in some ways i think that you're right and there's two arguments that i would make the two places that you named i would say are culinary unicorns so, ah, you know, okay. so, so I think about places like, um, you know, just places that kind of came onto the national scene and then exploded and are and have, you know, been popular ever since. So I think about State Bird in San Francisco in the same sort of a way um, and like the original Mamafuku and and those sort of places. So, you know, Rose's Luxury is that place in dc and i and my my like point b to that would be bad saint like i would say those two places are really uh, culinary unicorns so it's hard to make a generalization off of places like that because of their popularity and their sustained popularity but i do love what the you know folks behind them have kind of taken upon themselves to say okay well we have made the success. What are we going to do with our success? And now let's continue to have these different iterations. But you also touched on the fact that DC has less of an up and down culture because of the way that it's structured. And so to kind of get back to hurting your feelings, mm. which I'd wanted to publicly apologize for, <laughs> I just, DC was so fascinating 
but almost like its own world. Sure, sure. And so that was honestly like I I thought about different DC spots and I thought about neighborhoods. Yes. Um and uh and I was just like it's almost like it needs its own book. I agree with you. You know I, what I mean? Like yeah, because it, 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 it really does have a very involved story, and you know it is um, very rich to be sitting here in 2019. And I grew up here, and I know what it used to be like coming downtown. Because when I was in high school, the bands that I liked were playing at venues downtown, and they could play in those venues downtown because downtown was dead. Right. It was empty. There was yep. nothing here. There were no restaurants of interest. There was like power restaurants, Duke Zeberts, and right. some other like a <laughs> uh, French restaurant, Le Leon Dior. What I, you know, I'm going to get them all wrong, but, uh, you know, it was like, Five restaurants that were like the K Street Corridor, sure. Capitol Hill, you know, uh, oh, I'm going to forget the place up on the hill. Um, but, you know, th that that was it in terms of eating because back then, which was all of 12, 13 years ago, people didn't live in the city. Totally. And then, you know, sort of early aughts, folks started moving into the city. The population in D.C. is at least 100,000, if not more. Um, greater than it was at the at the beginning of the aughts and, you know, all of the complicated issues that you touch on in terms of gentrification and cultural misappropriation, that stuff, that, that persists here. And yet, um, at the same time, I feel uh, just, it's an embarrassment of riches in terms of the food opportunities here. Oh, absolutely. And it's an embarrassment of riches in a lot of places, but the issue is that all of those riches is making it difficult for individual restaurants who maybe don't blow up on the scale of a bad saint or rose's luxury to survive so like a, a good restaurant that you know has been around since 2009 that you were like oh that's a great restaurant like i like that spot that's like a great neighborhood restaurant you got a cool chef it's got a great vibe like, I like that place. Like, those are the places that are dying. Yeah. And, and, and that's sort of the, that's the bummer um, and from, from some aspects. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, there are restaurants like what you're describing, Kev, uh, here in Washington that fit exactly that, that opened up with that kind of farm to table uh, kind of concept that, I mean, I write 2008, 2009, and they're not here any longer. So. Right. And it, it's, you know, that's the thing. Like, also, it, we should just point out, it's okay for a restaurant that opened in 2008 to last for 10 years and close. That's a success story. Exactly. Right? Like, like, most restaurants don't get to that point. But, uh, but it is, what's more troubling is just the amount of capital that it takes in most of these cities to build out a restaurant. And so the way that I think about it, it's like, you know, in San Francisco, it's like $2.5 million to build out a restaurant, okay? So how are you gonna get that money as an independent chef? Uh, you're gonna get a group of investors, right? And so do you think that a group of investors who just put in $2.5 million, you're like, check this out, I'm gonna do this like edgy Finnish food. Like that's what I'm doing. It's gonna be edgy Finnish food. It's gonna be like these only like Finnish cocktails and I'm really going to like go deep into like the world of Finland, the Finland's culinary world. 
no, they're going to say, F you, <laughs> like, that's not the deal. You know what you're going to do? You're going to do an upscale French brasserie, or you're going to do a tasting menu. You're going to do sushi. You're going to do something that, you know, we can all get behind. Something that's going to make money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's, and, and you, and I almost think about it the way that uh, people think about movies, you know, it's like, yeah, you, you can spend $200 million on a Marvel movie because you know that, you know, you've got superheroes and whatever. But if you're trying to do this like independent film and you're trying to make it whatever, people don't want to take those sort of risks and, and they and they always are sort of going safe. So the canary in the coal mine for me of when I think there's going to be a recession is when I start seeing all these upscale French restaurants opening and all of these tasting menu shops and all of these places because you know there's so much money going into them that they're just like playing it safe and nothing cool happens when you play it safe from a culinary perspective. Right, 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 right. Well, that, that, um, is a bummer that, that makes me sad, uh, but I do think that, um, and I, well, we'll, 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 we'll cover that more. I, I'll tell you what I think, but I'm not going to do it right now. Cause I really want to make sure that we have some time to talk about one particular story, one particular character in this book, that I just can't, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around Andre Prince Jeffries. Mm -hmm. um, and the uh, incredible um, achievement of her and her family with Prince's Hot Chicken and what happened in terms of the rise of Nashville Hot Chicken and sort of where she is today. May I please ask you to talk about that? <laughs> All right, my culinary comrades, quick break from this chat with Kevin Alexander because we have to talk about Old El Paso. Taco night, a magical night, the night where everyone can eat happy, the night where conversations are engaging, the mood is light. No matter how you fill it, everyone has their own perfect taco. But what if your shell falls over, your tortilla dumps all the greatness onto your plate? Complete devastation. Kids crying, meal ruined, game over. But why risk that chaos? Grab Old El Paso. Old El, Old El Paso taco shells hold their own. Their stand and stuff shells won't fall over. The tortilla bowls are soft. They're not going to spill your perfected taco. They even created mini tortilla bowls for kids' hands or appetizers. With Old El Paso, you can spend more time enjoying the food and company and less time scooping the meat and cheese back into the shell and to top it all off. Their seasoning is the number one favorite in America. My hungry homies, when you grab the yellow box, let me tell you what I'm doing. I love the combo of the soft tortilla bowls, which can be formed into some modification, your own hack of kind of a quesadilla vibe, maybe a mini burrito vibe. And on the other side of this, you have next to it the stand-up crunchy taco shell. So I'm doing a beautiful meat and cheese combo with some kind of spicy shot inside the tortilla bowl or the mini tortilla bowls, which are spectacular for uh, two bites, maybe one bite if that's your gig. And then on the other hand, traditional taco. Go ahead and build that sucker up with your lettuce. Shred, Got to be shredded, some shredded cheese, maybe a, a thin layer of bean. I'm not against it. The shells are hearty enough to handle it. And of course, your protein of choice. I'm on this carne asada kick. Hungry homies, old El Paso, grab the yellow box. 
you want more taco ideas, get yourself to OldElPaso.com for recipes, products, and so much more. For those that don't know, so her family started, you know, it's traced back hot chicken. Uh, Prince's hot chicken is traced back to her uncle. And it it's one of the only foods in America that you can actually still look back to this person started it and this family is still doing it, you know, and they've still got their restaurant. So, um, you know, it really for a long period of time, and she ended up taking over the restaurant in the early 80s. And uh, for a long period of time, hot chicken was really just a North Nashville specialty mostly African-American folks uh, that were up there eating it. Occasionally, some, you know, country music singers and some people would pop up. But it really wasn't known even to greater Nashville. 2007, they launched this uh, hot chicken festival. So who, who's they? Because that this is part of what... The like, city of Nashville. Yeah, right. Because, uh, like, how do you go from zero to 60... On a particular a particular food item, it's a pretty narrow uh, space that it occupies for sure. So the mayor at the time was obsessed with hot chicken. He was, and he saw this as sort of, uh, you know, a brand. A, a, yeah, well, like this, but he, I think at the time he also sort of was like, I want other people to know about this. This is this delicious food that is created out of Nashville. Um, so the intentions were sort of pure mm -hmm. from the beginning to just let's champion this food that comes straight from Nashville. And so, but what that did, it's and its success drove imitators, right? And folks came in and they just started to see what they were doing. And it brought in professional restaurant folks. So there was kind of like three waves, you know, their princes and sort of Boltons were kind of the original. And then that go all the way back, like into the forties, well, fifties. Well, well, the princes, but then Bolton's. It it gets complicated because, like, uh, you know, the the guy who originally had the recipe, like, used to maybe be the cook at Prince's. It, oh, I it, see. It, there's like a, a very complicated lineage there that I couldn't really, as hard as I tried, I couldn't exactly squeeze out the the timeline. The, the timeline yeah. there, but but Prince's definitely beginning in, in in Bolton's, and they were sort of like in tier one, okay. of the era. And then um, these other places came in and they were more like uh, amateurs that were just interested in um, hot chicken. So that, it, like uh, Pepper Fire. Um, what about Hattie B's? Well, no. So that, so I'm going to get to that. Oh, sorry. So, and, uh, you know, uh, 400 degrees. And some of these places were literally just people who really were interested in it weren't professional like uh the guy from pepper fire i think it was a masseuse um and uh the woman 400 degrees uh i think like worked in marketing at some point you know what i mean they were just fans so uh but they were amateurs and then hattie b's comes in and these folks were uh professional restaurateurs and what they saw was an opportunity of like, we're going to have like a culinary trained chef. He's going to figure out like a recipe. We're going to throw beer in the mix. We're going to put it by Vanderbilt. We'll put it by where the tourists are too. We're going to serve it quicker and we'll get turnaround and, and Hattie B's took off. Right. Um, and it really, and Hattie B's has now expanded, you know, it's in Las Vegas, it's in Atlanta, there's talks of it coming to New York and all I think this it's in LA, stuff. right? But yeah. Yeah. Well, and then um 
so what you saw was really the it's starting and and, and Miss Andre explains this in kind of a, a, a funny way. She says, you know, they started calling it Nashville hot chicken. She was like, and what she meant when I had to like unpack that was they took away the name Prince's. Mm-hmm. So it was Prince's hot chicken. Then it became Nashville hot chicken. And as soon as the city owned it, then it wasn't about Prince's anymore. So then it kind of became this opportunity to expand and expand. And there was an issue, a Food Republic article, I think in 2015 around there, where a chef from Hattie B's um, was sort of talking about a dinner at the James Beard house and the headline you know, made it seem like Hattie B's had kind of like created this whole wave of hot chicken mania in America. And it didn't give credit till sort of the end to Prince's and it caused this uproar. It caused everyone to go crazy. And, and when you sort of unpacked what was happening, Miss Andre and her family really, they didn't mind so much that other people were doing hot chicken, but they wanted to be given credit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like if someone else is using your thing, you want to set them to say, like, with respect to us, you know, uh, with respect to Prince's, they're the originators, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. We're going to do our own thing. That needs to be the first thing out of your mouth. Exactly. And and so there was a sort of a perceived lack of respect there. And it it just turned into this thing where all of Nashville and then sort of a lot of the, the rest of the you know, internet had hot chicken takes. Yes. And, uh, but it, it, it really... For me, it showed the lines of like, what's, where is appropriation? Where do you draw the line between, you know, what's appropriation and what's sort of like respectfully kind of growing uh, a food business? And, yeah. and that was the the complicated story of, of those places. Yeah, and it doesn't feel like it has an answer other than at the very, very beginning Give out the props. You got to dap it up. Yeah, D- dap up princes. Just the first thing out of your out of your brain, out of your mouth. Anybody who wants to ask you about what you're doing with your thing, and this is, I think, uh, Andrew Zimmern bumped into this with his Chinese restaurant that he opened up in Minneapolis. Yep. Uh, where he Minneapolis, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He kind of declared, or the folks, the marketing team behind the the effort. So I don't have to uh, impugn uh, brother Andrew, but. Uh, you know, somebody had the idea of like treating Chinese food in Minneapolis under his brand as being something, uh, you know, uh, innovative and and revolutionary, and it kind of to the exclusion of a couple cultures that had been in place doing extraordinary versions of Chinese in Minneapolis for for decades previous, right? Yes, I mean. <sighs> It goes back to what you said. You just have to be respectful and thoughtful about the way uh, the way that you are showcasing your food. And it's like, I think it's actually a weirdly conservative, like boxed off idea to say like, oh, you can only cook the style of food of your like ancestors. Like that is not America. And that's not how, you know, I think we should think about the culinary world. But if you are cooking foods from other folks, you need to be respectful. 
you need to like identify, you know, where you got these things and, and, and have people understand so that it doesn't turn into these problematic, you know, fights. Well, and that's the, the terrific thing about this moment. Again, coming from the glass half full guy, you have the opportunity with the messaging to get the message right. Like, and there's lots of folks out there getting the message right. Like Andy Ricker did not open up Pock Pock and claim that his, um, you know, offering of Northern Thai cuisine that, you know, Portland hadn't really uh, seen before, I don't I don't believe, was, you know, uh, his, that he deserved to be championed. He just wanted to, to you know, offer up something. And, and I was lucky enough to have him on the show. And he corrected me a couple times in terms of my misapprehension around like the the uh, footprint that Northern Thai has in the United States already and sort of what his mission was. And, you know, there's there's a perfectly uh, uh, satisfactory way of, of communicating. Hey, I'm tr I'm trying to do some some food here that I think you folks might find interesting. I don't own it. Um, it's my take on it. I hope that you like it. Uh, and I think that was an element of the success that he experienced. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this actually ties into uh, Anjan and Emily Mitra's story in Dosa, because, you know, Anjan is from India and he just wanted to do a Southern Indian place, a cool place like you'd find in Bombay, which is where he's originally from. And he calls it Bombay and not Mumbai. Uh, he's but, allowed. Yeah. And like, so he was just aiming to do a place, you know, and, and that city is huge and, and, uh, he wanted to do South Indian and he wanted to make it cool. And what he found was when he opened in 2005 was that he was getting it from both ends. He was getting it from, uh, white folks who walked in and they were like, where's the tikka masala and where's the naan and, you know, and where's the butter chicken and then you'd have to be like, well, that's this is not what we do here, et cetera, et cetera. But then he also got it from first generation Indian Americans whose parents were from South India. Um, and they were saying, this isn't South Indian cuisine. Like you're using the California ingredients and et cetera, et cetera. And like, what do you know? You're from Bombay and et cetera. So there was like heat that he got on both ends, especially at the beginning. And he was just like, you can't win here. Like, yeah. I'm really actually just trying to push this conversation forward. And so the what I was trying to show with him was that by the time 10 years later, folks were ready to have that conversation and to be more open to expanded palates and all that sort of stuff. They forgot about him. They mm -hmm. were like, oh, yeah, 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 thank you for like breaking down the door here. But like we've moved on to the the new spots uh, and th that that's it's like a fickle system. Right. But th it really is difficult. Like w when you are choosing to do a food that's not sort of in traditional American victual wheelhouse, um, you're taking risks and you're taking all sorts of risks on your reputation. And all of a sudden it becomes this, you know, this sort of idea of like, well, why do you deserve to do this? And that isn't how we should look at it. Like people should deserve, but but you do need to pay respect and you do need to like just show what you're trying to do and make sure that like everyone can be a part of it. But it's a difficult, it's a difficult uh rope to walk. Yeah. I I again um think that that, you know, just the fact of sort of recognizing it and that 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 sensitivity 
can inform how we go forward with all of this. And we've seen the missteps and what happens when, when you step in the wrong place. So, uh, you know, I, I think we can do better and we're, we're on our way to doing better. Now we, we've touched on a lot of weighty stuff. <laughs> I want to sp talk specifically about your weight because we are convened here in Washington, D.C. You are at the first leg of your book tour here, the book Burn the Ice, the American Culinary Revolution and its end. You you did kind of the the, the Northeast uh, so far yep. on this leg of, of, of the trip. I want to hear about where you have eaten and what you have eaten in these great American cities in, in the mid-Atlantic slash Northeast. Yeah. So uh, let's see. I've been... I've done uh, New York, uh, sort of uh, Boston, suburban Boston, okay. uh, which was where I'm from. I did Portland, Maine, Providence, and now I'm in here in D.C., going to end in Pittsburgh. Um, so, I like, uh, when I was up in Portland, Maine, um, so I was at the Hunt and Alpine Club, which is a fantastic cocktail bar you would love. They're famous for their popcorn. Mm. Their popcorn is absolutely delicious. I can't remember what is on it. Uh, and Andrew and Brianna Volk, who are the owners, will probably yell at me later. But uh, that the deviled eggs and the uh, popcorn there oh. were just out of the world. Okay. Then uh, we went over to their other restaurant, Little Giant, and they had this burger. And as you know, I'm a, a bit of a, a, a burger a connoisseur. And it was like the the American cheese was so drippy and the onions were baked in and, and the, the bun got really squishy and it got really messy. And there was some shredded lettuce, which I don't mind because, the you know, when you get the leaf lettuce, it kind of slips Oh, this off. sounds like a traditional smash burger. Yeah, but it was it had a little more heft to oh, it than I thought. And normally okay. I'm, and normally that's not I, I'm I am a, a, a smash I do like the double patty and, and all of that, the goodness that comes with that. Yeah, we mentioned that at the outset. You did Burger Quest. Yes. 300 burgers. 330 three, in 30 cities. 330 burgers, 30 cities. So yeah. when we're talking about burger, he this is the man to... to one of the men. There are a, yes, lot, of there men are a lot of men and women, and women out there who, that have points of view that are worthwhile when it comes to burgers. But yes. when we're comparing burgers. <laughs> uh, okay, so a little bit thicker. Interesting. Yeah, but and then it, it just... But everything squished down. And I think mm. that's like a... a a key component. So you got to get it squished down yep. and then you bit into it and you got sort of like the buttery griddled onions and the pepper and then the mix of sort of the fatty meat with the melt of the cheese. But then there was some acid, uh, some acid elements in there. From what? And well, I think there was like a, a bit of uh, an aioli. And oh, I, okay. And you know, I, I really wish I had the exact details right. But man, that was an Excellent, excellent burger. I have to say, Little Giant in Portland, Maine, whatever they're doing with their burger, uh, people need to check that out. So that was uh, that was the highlight from there. When in Providence, I was staying at the Dean Hotel, and they have a restaurant. I believe the restaurant is called North, um, and they had uh, some fantastic sort of Asian inflected food. It, there was um, this Vietnamese. Uh, fish sauce wings okay that that were great yeah there but they also had this like crispy kind of like a ham biscuit that it had a little bit of like a interesting like grain mustard in there that give it a little bite but like they'd 
crisped up the pork so it was almost like a, it had like elements of bacon you know when you put prosciutto in the oven and it yes, kind of like yes. and the fat oh, gets translucent I do. oh yes i do yeah oh and 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 it was like buttery and crunchy and it it really did it for me and then uh i was with my buddy jim scott who is a novelist out there and we had to go over to al forno uh, to have the grilled pizza. You can't go to Ro Portland, uh, Providence. Providence, Providence, Rhode Island. You can't go to Rhode Island. First of all, rule Providence rule. No, you can't go to Providence and not have Italian, but especially this particular very unique. Find it only in Providence grilled pizza. Exactly. So grilled pizza is a, a Rhode Island style of pizza, Providence style of pizza, and they literally they they lather up the dough with olive oil and they put it on the grill and, and it, it is still, I had, I had had it, you know, a few years ago. It is still spectacular. I mean, why would it change? Well, of know, course. It's, well, and, and I think also like the, the, uh, green onions that they have on is sort of like a, a secret little, uh, like a little secret element to it that hits. But then we also had, um, the meatballs there, uh. which are fantastic. Um, so yeah, so we hit we hit all of those spots up. Um, so shout out Providence. The the scene there is is looking really great. Uh, I'm very excited. Uh, you know, I let we you. I mean, you can talk a little bit about what we've got on on the menu tonight. No, I I mean uh, we were lucky enough. You have a we have a uh, here in Washington as a resource. Your your pal Mora Judkis, Judkis yeah. who is, is suggested that we go over and try this new Korean establishment mm -hmm. Anju, uh, which is uh, by some folks behind um, a couple of Korean restaurants here in Washington called Mandu for a while, but is getting a lot of acclaim. We're going to be lucky to get in there. I think we're going to have to fight our way in. But I, I, I am now starving. This is this was deliberate because we I, we set this <laughs> podcast up to be taped right before dinner, and I wanted you to really get my taste buds working here with all the, the terrific meals that you've had on your way down here. Now, I want to just uh, tell all the hungry homies out here, Kevin and I are, are, are friends for life. He has amongst the, the very many uh, um, you know, projects he has underway at any given point in time, I'm an absolute A number one fan of the Too Fast, Too Casual series where he goes to places that you, my culinary comrades, my taste buds like to eat like Five Guys, like Panda Express, and most recently, like Wingstop, just spectacular. Now, I am not going to let you talk about any of that series right now because we're going to get together. We're going to reconvene. That deserves its own show. We're going to do Too Fast, Too Casual. It's right up the House of Carbs alley. We're going to break that sucker down, uh, uh, you know, element by element, step by step, bite by bite. That's not for today. Um, but what is for today? Let's tell all of the uh, victual varsity yes. out there yes. where you're headed next. Where where can they come see you and yeah, talk to so, you and, and talk about the book? So uh, after this, I'm headed to Pittsburgh on Monday. So uh, it's a ticketed event. There's still some tickets left. It's at Dinette. Uh, there's well, I, I have, I'm sorry to tell the good people of Pittsburgh, by the time this podcast goes up, <laughs> Kevin, oh, yeah. Kevin will have already come and gone. That's true. All right. So, <laughs> but uh, I hope all of you had a great time. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a great event. Uh, <laughs> but then I'm going to be doing um, some more West Coast stuff. I've got great. a, you know, I will tease because I don't know the exact date. 
but I'll tease a dinner. Uh, Gabriel Rucker oh, wow. is planning to cook from memory a meal from 2006 because he doesn't keep any of his men. He, he doesn't keep recipes. He throws all that stuff away. So he's just going to kind of cook from menu, uh, from memory, a delicious meal uh, circa 2006. It's going to be a ticketed event sometime probably in December in Portland. Um, oh my God. That's and, an OMFG. Oh That's yeah. A OMFG. My hungry homies. Keep your eyes out. Uh, will, will it go up on Thrillist? Like when will you announce where, well, where can people go to find these tickets? Yeah. Once, once we've, uh, just, uh, follow me over at, uh, on Instagram, it's Kevin Alexander writes or, uh, K Alexander O three on Twitter for details on that, but it is going to be glorious uh, house. We we want to fly you out there for that. God, I got to figure out a way to make that happen. Make That's it happen. just incredible. All right, Kevin Alexander, the book is Burn the Ice, the American Culinary Revolution and its end. Thanks for coming on. I'm starving. Let's go eat. Let's go eat. Thank you, house. All right, my taste buds. My varsity victual. There we go. I hope you enjoyed that long conversation with Kevin Alexander. It was super fun to have and to sit across from him. His book is Burn the Ice, the American Culinary Revolution and its End. And you can track his whereabouts. He's doing the book tour at various uh, uh, destinations across these great United States. Check his Twitter handle, KAlexander03, or his Insta is Kevin Alexander Writes, all one word, Kevin Alexander W R I. T-E-S. My taste buds got to also give a quick shout out here to Old El Paso. They're bringing magic to taco night with a stand and stuff and tortilla bowl shells. That's right. These taco shells stand up on their own so you can focus less on the spilling and more on the filling and eating. Old El Paso, grab the yellow box. Harvey homies, you know how we do it here at House of Carbs. We'll be back next week. I've got a couple of delicious guests lined up in this transition from the late summer uh, palette into the early fall palette is, is certainly getting the taste buds lubricated. On that note, let's stay hungry out there. <laughs> <laughs>